0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue-wattle bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes.
1: Community or chaos? We can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society.
0: Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quaker's Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz.
2: Good morning, friends. Welcome to Community or Chaos. We have Matt Fuller, who's uh, doing his PhD dissertation on depleted uranium at the National Center for Peace and Conflict Studies at Otago University. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcasting, going to Community of Chaos at the end of this week or the beginning of next week. And you can also catch most of the things we've done this year by going to podcast. Matt. What drew you toward an academic and practical career promoting peace and disarmament?
1: Well, first off, thank you for having me this morning. I really appreciate the invitation. Um, To answer your question, uh, it's it's a very long answer, and I'll try to keep it short. Uh, The the shortest version is that I grew up in a very political family, and um, my father worked for a senator, um, and I grew up right outside of Washington, D.C., so I certainly had uh, politics running in my veins from a very early age. But I became interested in international relations when I was a teenager in high school uh, for a wide variety of reasons, and then when I got to university, I wanted to study international relations. But um, there was sort of a one-two punch. The first was that uh, my best friend was shot and killed when he was 18 and I was 19. I was a freshman at university. And, um, and that had a huge impact on the way that I saw the world. It became um, a real eye-opener because after that, every news story I saw that was about you know, if I read a news story that said five people killed in Iraq, uh, instead of just reading the news story, I would instantly think that's five families, five groups of friends that are going through what I'm going through right now. And the second was that the way that international relations was taught uh, is largely through a lens of realism, which is very Machiavellian in its outlook. Uh, And I found that the simple back and forth of power politics was deeply revolting to me. I thought that the idea that people were jockeying for power and innocent people were losing their lives along the way just didn't hit me right. I, I thought that there had to be a moral core to whatever decision was being made. So I go to apply for grad schools and um there's one program in particular uh at American University in Washington, DC called the ethics Peace in global affairs and i said well this really sticks out like a sore thumb so i applied for it i got a scholarship uh and that was it that was all she wrote uh after that i got my degree i wound up uh, volunteering at the corey Mila peace and reconciliation center in northern ireland which was its own fantastic experience then i went to south africa worked with the democracy development program Then I uh, went back to the U.S., worked for Pew Charitable Trust, you know, the survey guys. Um, Then after that, I worked for the National Academy of Sciences. And then finally, my big job uh, that I had for five and a half years and did right before I moved to New Zealand was that I was an instructor um, or what you'd call a lecturer at St. Philip's College in San Antonio, Texas, where I taught ethics uh, and other branches of philosophy, but mainly ethics. So uh, when you put all those things together, that's how I wound up on the path I am now. The
2: um – What year was it when your friend was killed? 2006. Okay, when I grew up, I grew up in America. Yeah. Um, Guns weren't a big issue in the 60s and 70s. Well, at least in in California. Mm -hmm. In fact, I had a hunting license when I was, I must have been 10, I lived in the mountains. And uh, I never became a good hunter. (laughs) <laughs> I did have a special course in gun handling. You had to if you were under 16 and you wanted a license.
1: Yeah, I got my rifle remerit badge in Boy Scouts, so I think we ha- we have that in common.
2: <laughs> but uh, I won't get too personal about it. I probably quit hunting because um, people out hunting would just get a little drank a bit before they went hunting (laughs) (laughs) well that's that's a bad combination that's not what you want to do (laughs) and by that time i was growing out of it anyway yeah Yeah. um but i was very surprised when i went back in the late early early 90s and found the guns were really a big thing hmm
1: yeah, I mean, I grew okay. up in the early '90s, so I can't really, I can't really uh, answer for what it was like before that.
2: Yeah. Well, just um, why did it become such a? Why did the increased use and carrying of guns become? Why did that happen?
1: You know, uh, I mean, I, there
2: was gun. America's always been more gun conscious than yeah than most countries, but. Between the time I left and the time I went back for a year, something must have happened.
1: I really don't know. Uh, I think that would take a, a much longer time to explain, and I'm not the expert on that particular issue. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, okay. yeah. The um, why did you choose a toggle? Well, uh, Otago is a very worldwide respected institution. Um, so, you know, if you're in the peace studies field, it's it's the place to be. It's certainly one of the places to be. There's a lot of well-respected peace studies departments around the world. Um, and I had applied to a couple inside of the U.S., but had just had a hard time uh, finding a good fit. So my friend actually sent me a, a listicle of, like, here's five, you know, international uh PhDs you know that you can get that offer scholarships and I just applied to them and I got accepted at Otago and I was really happy about that Uh, so it wound up being a real boon and so uh, in 2019 when I got the letter I just accepted immediately didn't even think about the other places that I'd applied to and I've been really happy about that ever since it's uh, it's definitely gonna be a feather in my cap I'll definitely be a proud Otago graduate uh, rep this university worldwide hopefully
2: what do you think you'll do when you finish
1: My dream job would be to work for one of the more uh, respected international anti-landmine organizations. Um, uh, As we'll talk about depleted uranium later on, there are some really good um, organizations working on that issue, and obviously they would be a great fit, but the anti-landmine organizations uh, have a lot of uh, staying power, and they're doing a lot of great work, and I'd love to work for one of them.
2: Would you be looking on the ground or working on policy?
1: Well, either one would be fine. Uh, I mean, it's it's sort of like you apply for the company. In my case, my attitude is you apply for the organization because you think the organization is good, and then you find the best fit for you inside of that organization. But, yeah, I mean, I think the dream of every graduate is to do field work. Um, you just don't know whether or not they want you to do field work. And so that's what it comes down to. You know, Do you know the language well enough? Mm-hmm. Do you have the technical abilities? Things like that really matter when you're getting deployed to the field.
2: I'm not sure they want to do field work on mine mines. he things to do with your
1: life? <laughs> well, luckily, luckily, they uh, they actually have a pretty good system these days. They they're really on top of it. They they have lots of great safety protocols. What is depleted
2: uranium, and why is it particularly inhuman and something that should be outlawed internationally?
1: Yeah, so obviously this is the real crux of my research. I started off um, when I came to Otago, my initial application was why do some weapons get banned and others don't? And then that got narrowed down to, okay, if you wanted to do a campaign to ban a weapon, what would be the best strategy, what would be the most effective way to do it? And then that got narrowed down to looking at different weapons campaigns. And finally, that got narrowed down to looking at depleted uranium precisely because the campaign to ban it has been so unsuccessful. Um, I mean that isn't to say they haven't had some successes and they're not working really hard but it's uh it's definitely a lesser known topic even when I talk to the other peace study students if they haven't met me or talked to me a lot of them don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about my research until I'm I've a explained it. bit surprised it. about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh so uh, naturally occurring uranium takes on many different isotopes. If it's been a long time for the listeners at home, if it's been a long time since you've been uh, in uh, chemistry class, an isotope is just a, a, an atom of an element that has the same amount of protons and neutrons, but it has a different amount of electrons. Um, so in this case, we're talking about uh, uranium. 238 is the most common uh, kind of uranium and naturally occurring uranium. It's going to be the most common one. It's uh, got all the same you know protons and neutrons and it's got 238 electrons however uranium-235 which has a few fewer electrons um, is the one that people really want that's the one that's actually used in making nuclear power plants and uh, nuclear weapons work and there's a process by which they go in and they take natural uranium and they try to strip the uranium-235 isotope out of it when they've done that successfully the a big block of mostly uranium-235 is called enriched uranium. uh, And the leftover – is called depleted uranium because it's been depleted of its enriched uranium. Uh, well at some point somebody was looking at this and they just had a lot of depleted uranium lying around. It was just a waste product and they were wondering if they could do anything with it. And uh they realized Probably really useful, huh? Yeah. They realized uh okay, this stuff actually is pretty interesting. Uh for starters it's 1.8 times denser than lead. Um, and it's, you know, so it's harder and heavier, so maybe we could use it in a weapon. Uh, and in its use, it's wound up having all sorts of catastrophic effects as it's gone down. So, in answer to your original question, you know, why is it particularly inhumane? Well, for starters, even though it's less radioactive than uranium-235, it still is lightly radioactive. All isotopes of uranium are radioisotopes. Depleted uranium in particular is also a heavy metal, so it's toxic. It's bad for you for the same reason that arsenic is bad for you. Uh, and long-term expo- exposure uh, can be incredibly harmful to health. And moreover, it's got a half-life of 4.5 billion years. So when you use it, it really sticks around. It's going to be causing a problem for millennia after a battle taken place if it doesn't get cleaned up. So...
2: When was it first used? Developed as a weapon? I think
1: uh, they first started taking. Uh, I think they first started taking it into account in like the late 1970s, and then the 1980s, it started to become more and more used. And its first big use in war was the Persian Gulf War in uh, Operation Desert Storm in 1991. Uh, so that was its first big use in uh, in war. -hmm. I guess that's why
2: I was sort of surprised that more people haven't heard about it because I knew about it because of the Iraq War.
1: Yeah me too i've been following this issue for a long long time all the way back when i was in uh, middle school i remember reading Mm -hmm. about depleted uranium and thinking wow this stuff is bad this stuff should be banned Mm -hmm. i remember i was in a a band a heavy metal band and we were trying to think of a name for our band and uh and i said what about depleted uranium because that's a heavy metal right um and they said well what is it what does it do and i explained what it was and they're like oh that's too heavy even for us like that's that's too dark even for a metal band so you know i i've been aware of this issue Issue for a very long time, uh, and I remember just describing it to my colleagues uh, at St. Phillips, and they'd never heard of it, even though some of them were military veterans. It was it was absolutely fascinating how much it's managed to fly mm-hmm. under the radar.
2: Oh, I knew about it because I had a, a Quaker friend who'd followed Iraq for a very long time, imposing the sanctions, yeah, yeah, and saying it would be a, an invasion would be a disaster. So that's how I knew about it. But yeah what was the what's the what's the effects in Iraq and what does it and why do they is it that much better as a weapon or than not having it
1: so the early days if you go back to like World War two or something they're mostly making um tank shells and stuff out of things like lead. Uh, And as I said, depleted uranium is 1.8 times denser than lead, so it's both harder and heavier. Uh, But even more importantly, it's pyrophoric, so it actually burns when it hits something. And it's also self-sharpening, so when it hits something rather than flattening the way lead does, it shatters uh, and creates these increasingly sharper bits of shrapnel. Um, So its most common use is as a penetrator round, uh, which is used in tank shells, artillery, um, even on planes trying to hit tanks on the ground. Uh, and it, although in the Iraq war it was actually adapted for lots of other uses as well. But, yeah, its most common use is to try to bust through um, enemy armor. Um, in terms of its effects on Iraq, I mean, I think we'll be talking about that for a good long time because that's definitely the place it's been used the most. Okay. Um Well, let's talk about Iraq
2: and what happened there.
1: Yeah. So if you go back to the 1990s, um, you see that you have this massive uh, use of depleted uranium in the Persian Gulf War. So you have this huge U.N. response to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait and um, and just about all the countries. We'll talk about this when we actually, uh, if, you, if you want to, about the different countries that use it. But basically all of the big allied powers that were actually involved in the Operation Desert Storm were using depleted uranium. Uh, so when they would go up against these tank battles, because Saddam Hussein famously had these huge uh, mechanized uh, infantry corps, armored divisions that he was sending out to fight, in uh, Kuwait and against the UN forces. And um, when they had these tank battles or when they had these major artillery battles, the tanks were destroyed largely with depleted uranium. So you see this massive use of it in that moment in time and as the war comes to an end because it's famously operation desert storm is famously the hundred-hour war it goes by very quickly people think okay this is over such a huge victory uh, no problems here um, and because it was done under the auspices of the UN, everybody just blanketly thought of it as a just war, um, and, uh, and the explanation of Saddam Hussein seemed like a just cause, and on and on and on. But here's the thing. You can fight a just war in an unjust way, and I don't think at that time people really understood the full – the full implications the full consequences of actually using depleted uranium in their weaponry so what proceeds to happen is that because of the Iraq war or because of the Persian Gulf war a huge amount of Iraq's infrastructure is destroyed and then you also have the follow up sanctions that that come with that and when those infrastructure items are destroyed that means that their ability to do things like mass manufacturing really slows down. Uh, so if you're a regular Iraqi, especially if you don't live in one of the big cities, um, your ability to just go to a hardware store and buy a hammer or a wrench or something is pretty much null and void. So what would happen is that you had this huge cottage industry of essentially blacksmiths who would get scrap metal and then uh, make, just with old-fashioned uh, blacksmithing ways, um, hammers and wrenches and the things that people would need for their daily lives. So they had to rely on people going out and picking scrap metal and bringing it to them and then melting that scrap metal down into the shapes and tools that people needed for their daily lives. So what happens? Well, you have this huge quantity of scrap metal from these battles out in the desert in northern Kuwait and southern Iraq, Uh, and... Bedouins go out into the desert uh, and they just pick off bits of scrap metal and they take them back into the downtown areas. And so, the depleted uranium either the Iraqi tanks, which are caked in um, black dust, as it's called colloquially, the depleted uranium dust uh, from when the the depleted uranium penetrator shells would hit and um, and burn and then leave behind this residue, or they were actually picking up some of the Allied tanks, especially American tanks, uh, that had depleted uranium armor as well as depleted uranium weaponry. And so they'd strip parts off of these armored vehicles and then take them downtown. And then it would get smelted, which means that it would be ignited right in the heart of the downtown, and then people would have the uranium sitting around in their houses as just a tool, uh, not realizing uh, what it was or uh, what effect it could be having, which is bad enough when it's a hammer or a wrench. It's even worse if it's something like a fork or a spoon, right? So you're taking depleted uranium and you're putting it in your mouth every day. And one of the things we do know about depleted uranium is that it breaks down faster in... Um, wet warm conditions which first off southern iraq is famously the fertile crescent it's got that huge swampland, so that was already going to be a problem but then of course your mouth is also uh, a warm wet environment so if you have a spoon made out of depleted uranium then it is in fact breaking down inside of your own body Uh, and that's before you even get to the problem with smelting it in the downtown area So when you ask about what's the effect on Iraq, the first thing we need to understand is the longer history of the scientific debate around um, depleted uranium. Because of course, if people I think had known in the early days just how bad it was, they might never have used it in the first place. Um, And in this context, we have to understand that in the immediate aftermath of the Persian Gulf War, there were a huge amount of studies done on people who had been wounded with bits of shrapnel from depleted uranium, and overwhelmingly these people that had been wounded with these bits of shrapnel were actually fine. Uh, their scar tissue had done an effective job of protecting their bodies from the bits of shrapnel, and so they were able to mostly live a normal life. But That's not the whole story because, as we discovered later, that wasn't the primary form of ingestion. Most people weren't walking around with bits of depleted uranium in their arm. They were eating it or drinking it or breathing it in. Uh, I'll give you a really good analogous example. My great-grandfather, he got shot when he was um, a teenager, but he survived. Um, And when he died in, I believe, his 80s, actually— they were doing uh, the autopsy, and the doctor said to his family, my dad's family, uh, hey, did you know he had a bullet in his thigh this whole time? And uh, and they said, no. Oh, I think he might have mentioned that, you know. So you can have a bullet in, you know, your hip or something for decades, and it doesn't really cause you a problem. On the other hand, if you were to take a bullet's worth of lead, ground it up into a fine powder, and snort it, you'd have a completely different set of health problems, Right. So this is sort of what happens with depleted uranium, is that in its fragmented version, when people just have bits of it in their skin, it doesn't cause them huge um, problems, at least that we know of so far. But if it's breathed in or if it's drank or eaten, it's a whole different set of health problems and much more potent health problems. Um, You'll remember, of course, earlier that I said it's a metal that burns and that it's self-sharpening. So when it actually burns, the aerosolized particles of depleted uranium are incredibly small. They're so small that no gas mask can stop them. Uh, And the particles are actually much, much smaller than even the smallest particles of natural uranium dust. So people breathe them in. Uh, it gets into the aviolas, uh of their lungs. It then gets into their bloodstream. Once it's in their bloodstream, it's really sticking around. Um, so as you can imagine, people taking uh, these uranium-caked bits of metal or just outright bits of depleted uranium into the hearts of the downtown, once it's smelted, downtown. So now you've taken it from the battlefield, brought it into, let's say, Basra, and just started to melt it down right in the downtown part of the city. Everybody that's walking by is breathing it in. All the smelters certainly are. All the blacksmiths certainly are. And then all just the regular people that have a shop or a home near these places are. And then it's getting up in the air. It's being carried by the wind. So... You begin to see a whole set of health problems arise, both in the veterans of the Persian Gulf War, who are obviously exposed to it um, from just firing off rounds, and uh, from people in Iraq who are exposed to it in a long-term capacity from having it melted in their downtown. So. Whereas most people's research, uh, especially at a PhD level, can be pretty dry, mine was like trying to solve a murder mystery. I found myself trying to connect the dots between these different happenings and these different scientific papers, and it just uh, really took, took me to another place. It really took on a life of its own. Um, the first big one comes out you know, almost 10 years after the Persian Gulf War, and it's by a researcher named Han Kang, and he obviously is the head of a team, so Han Kang et al. Um, and in 2001, they found that doing this huge survey of uh, Persian Gulf War veterans, that veterans who had been deployed to the Persian Gulf War uh, were – Twice as likely to have birth defects in their children as veterans who had not been deployed, and for female veterans, it was actually almost three times as likely. Um, and then there was also a significantly higher rate of uh, miscarriages amongst uh, these veterans' children, their their families. So um, that was the first big clue that something was wrong; something had happened. And it was just trying to figure out why it had happened. So, you fast forward a couple of years um, and you get to uh, another uh, researcher, her name's Rita Hinden. Uh, and again, she's a head of a team, so uh, Hinden et al. And in 2005, they found that when they were exposing animals to depleted uranium in its aerosolized form, so in the tiny bits of dust rather than bits of shrapnel uh, that they would insert into like a mouse or something, they were using. Um, you know, uh, the aerosolized form, they found a huge increase in birth defects amongst the animals that were exposed. And so this really started to set off alarm bells because now you were having two things that looked a little bit more alike. And then finally in 2011 and 2012, a group of scientists, half from Iraq and half from Northern Ireland, um, were led by a woman named Samira Alani. Uh, They got together and studied hair samples from Iraqi patients Whose children had birth defects, and they found that these people in their hair had substantially higher amounts of depleted uranium uh, than control groups did. And I might add, the first time they did this, they did it with a control group from Sweden, um, and they said, "Okay, well, Sweden's too different." So then they did it with a control group of Israel, and they found the exact same thing. The Iraqi uh, people, who both parents who had had these children that had birth defects in their hair, they were just finding substantially higher amounts of depleted uranium. So now at least you have a correlation. And when I put those things together, you know, between uh, Kang, uh, Hinden, and uh, Alani, and obviously their teams that they were a part of, um, looking into this, I begin to see a pretty solid pattern of understanding there is a problem, understanding that we can definitely prove this problem in animals, and then understanding that there's a correlation in human beings as well. So future generations continue to suffer from this decades after this war has ended. um, And then obviously depleted uranium was used in the invasion of Iraq and the subsequent Iraq war in 2003 as well. Um, so we have no idea, or more accurately, we will soon have an idea of how bad that could be. And in fact, uh, when I when I earlier said we will soon have, I should note that uh, Alani at all study uh, focused on people from Fallujah. So that area was not really affected in the Persian Gulf War. So she really was looking at a more recent exposure uh, than something that had happened twenty years ago. Uh, at that point, now of course it's thirty years ago. So. You know these different cases um, really showed a, a, an issue was happening. So veterans, of course, as I just said, you have about a double the chance of having a birth defect in your child if you were fighting the Persian Gulf War. For Iraqis, we're looking at like quadruple. And so as the rates of birth defects in children in Iraq, you know, that have been exposed to this toxic metal. Uh, began to quadruple around the country, first in southern Iraq and northern Kuwait in the Persian Gulf War. And then again, seeing this repeated in uh, a place like Fallujah after the invasion of Iraq, uh, we begin to see a clear pattern that this is very likely the cause of those things. There's definitely, I would argue, a preponderance of evidence, a really good, solid evidence to stand on that this stuff is incredibly dangerous, is causing massive health problems, and is poisoning people on a huge scale.
2: When did they first take note was did you have enough evidence before the second Iraq before the invasion of Iraq
1: I would argue that there was enough evidence before two thousand three to stand by what what is generally called the precautionary principle that if you don't know whether or not something is properly dangerous and you suspect it might be, you probably shouldn't use it. I think that that evidence was already there before 2003. In particular, there's a researcher um, who I just have a huge amount of respect for, and I really hope I get to interview him for my Ph.D. His name is Asaf Dorakovich. He's a doctor, um, and he was actually a U.S. Army colonel, and he began to notice uh, problems in the veterans that he was treating. And he was the guy that sort of I, – I think he was the first guy that figured out that – the problem was the aerosolized particles that the problem was that it was getting into their lungs um when they were exposed to the burned or the dust form of depleted uranium and that was what was causing all the issues and then you had follow-up research uh done by a guy named um Wayne Briner and he was the guy because initially even with Durakovich's research there was a belief amongst a lot of people that uh once it was in your blood you'd still excrete it rather quickly um but uh Wayne Briner found that that wasn't the case, that once it got in your blood, it could get stuck in your bones. And once it was in your bones, you know, it would take about four years for it to get out of your system. And and then, you know, those little flecks of depleted uranium dust in your bones are just doing damage the whole time they're there. So I think that that one-two punch had already happened by 2003. And I think that that um, that information was available. But again, you had a huge group of people that were also researching people that had bits of shrapnel. And the attitude at the time was, uh, well, these people with bits of shrapnel in their arm, this is way more uranium than these guys that breathed it in were exposed to. And uh, and yet, uh, they don't seem to have any of the problems that you're talking about. And so because you had one set of studies on one side and another set of studies on the other side, the attitude was... Well, we just don't know let's not do anything until we know more, which i don't think is a good attitude to have. I think the attitude you want to have is well, we don 't know we should stop using this until we know more, that you shouldn't be uh, treating your own soldiers and airmen and marines uh, and uh, sailors as guinea pigs I think but that 's
2: a long history of uh, both the British and the Americans of using their. Military is giving any pigs in, in, the nu- in the development testing of nuclear weapons.
1: Yeah, sadly. And indeed, I mean, there's even lawsuits going on to this day around exposure to that issue. In fact, one of the most interesting cases I came across in my research was the case of a guy named Kenny Duncan, uh, who I would also hopefully uh, get a chance to uh, interview for this. Uh, and Duncan was uh, in the British Army, and he was sent out along with his whole unit uh, to try to actually go out and clean up some of the... Um, depleted uranium, uh, the the essentially the um, the leftover scrap tanks that had been destroyed out in the desert, uh, and when he was out there, you know, he was exposed to a lot of the dust because it was on the tank. There'd been a lot of, uh, sadly, a lot of friendly fire in the Persian Gulf War, so he comes back and uh, pretty much by 1993, so only two years after the war, he's already just racked with health problems, and eventually um, they they do an enforced medical retirement on him. So he was honorably discharged, but medically retired uh, because he's got all these health problems. Now, in the British military, the way they have their system set up, the, uh, if you get medically retired because of something that happens in uh, combat uh, as, or in any way related to the military, you know, you get a full pension, whereas if something happens outside of the military but it still causes you to be medically retired, you get a half pension. And so their argument was that he only deserved a half pension because they didn't know what had caused all of his health ailments. And I might add he then had children, and his children did indeed have birth defects. Um, And so it took him a little while, but eventually he sued the British military and demanded a full pension uh, because he believed that exposure to depleted uranium is what had caused his health problems. And so – They have this huge court case in uh, 2003, 2004. It's finally settled in 2004. And he is able to get together all of the guys from his unit, or I think about, yeah, like 16 of them are able to get together um, and and jointly sue the British government. Um, And they actually get this guy uh, from Germany, a guy named Dr. Albrecht Schott, uh, who's a German biochemist. And uh, Schott does an analysis of their DNA and shows that, on average, so this isn't even the worst of them, just on average of these 16 guys, um, they had 14 times the chromosomal aberrations uh, that you'd expect in a normal person and that the kind of aberrations they were having were consistent with long-term exposure to radiation. So he proves in a court of law that he was made ill uh, and his children were affected by exposure to depleted uranium uh, and that 's two thousand and four so we 're talking i mean in the case is two thousand and three so we 're talking right around this era that um, Iraq is being invaded, including by you know the British obviously along with the u s and other coalition partners and I think at that point w- once you have a court case where you 've proven beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law that long term exposure to depleted uranium can cause such drastic health problems in your soldiers then there really isn't a very good excuse to keep using it after that point. And so I, I think by 2004, any argument that it was not dangerous, that it was safe, that it could be used, is out the window. But it continued to get used, and it continues to get used to this day, even in spite of that case.
2: Okay. I'll play some music and we'll go back there.
1: Yeah.
0: He does the things he should He lives inside a barrel made of wood He designs the armaments for those who go to war He never questions what they use them for On weekends he goes sailing In his boat out on Inside his barrel, he knows it's a happy, happy day. Living in his barrel with the world outside his door, every day he helps to win the war his drawings, never counting up the cost, or knowing what is won and what is lost. From his window, he sees the little children wow. back, but safe inside.
2: was john Eganith and he was um a war veteran and some of the money for that um cd went to the veterans against war and i believe he was um involved in one of the, the iraq wars perhaps and we're talking with uh Matt Filler, and we're, you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to um, podcast and going to community or chaos. And my apologies for a few seconds of chaos when I didn't push the right buttons. <laughs> and now we're going back to talk more about depleted uranium. Well the uh which nations use de- depleted uranium
1: so we know a lot of nations use them, but only two nations admit to using it uh, and that's the United States and the United Kingdom. However, thanks to you know very intrepid uh journalism, we know that uh France and Russia also use depleted uranium. We're a hundred percent sure about that. What we also know is that there are. Um, Obviously, the U.S. exports a lot of weapons um, that it makes itself, and there's no reason to really think that it would make one set of weapons with DU and one set of weapons without depleted uranium. So we know that the kind of weapons systems that use depleted uranium that the U.S. has for itself, that it then manufactures and exports abroad, have been sold to Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Israel, Pakistan, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, Australia, Canada, Brazil, Italy, Spain, and and more Uh, On top of that, we also know that China and India have independently tried to get a hold of these weapons, and that as recently as, like, 2012, Australia uh, got caught shipping depleted uranium uh, to India through ports in New Zealand. Um, And so uh, when more and more countries are using this weapon, then it's really only a matter of time before every battlefield becomes a contamination site. I mean, you know, Israel and Egypt, India and Pakistan, China and Taiwan, these countries all have these weapons and you know they're they have the ability to use them if they get into a big fight with each other what could the consequences be uh so that's that's something i'm really worried about i think of the romans salting the earth at carthage and that somehow every battlefield becomes carthage at a certain point making sure that nothing can ever grow there again i i think that's what's scary to me
2: are there any countries that are refused to to develop them or use them?
1: Yeah, actually, uh, back in the 2000s, there was a huge push uh, against depleted uranium. As I said, you know, you had a couple of big uh, landmark case studies and court cases come out, and they've had a huge influence. Uh, And, of course, that's what my Ph.D. is about, you know, looking at why these campaigns are successful. Um, But sadly, you know, uh, it it was – only partially successful in only a handful of countries, the, the most successful places were Belgium and Costa Rica now Costa rica doesn 't really have a military, uh, so for them it was it was um, a good thing that they banned it and they went a step further and also banned Costa Rican banks from investing in uh, depleted uranium. Uh, are companies that make depleted uranium. Belgium, interestingly, also did that. They Not only did they ban their military from using it, they then banned the passage of depleted uranium through their borders, which when you consider you know they're the headquarters of NATO and the u s the u k and France all use depleted uranium uh, that 's a pretty extraordinary gesture all by itself, but then they went that step further and actually uh, did what Costa Rica did and I might add Belgium did it first Costa Rica followed their lead uh, and uh, Belgium banned belgian banks from investing in companies that make depleted uranium so i mean it was a pretty big move on their part and rather extraordinary so they're definitely one of my case study countries in my phd um new zealand interestingly tried to do the same thing so Belgium did theirs in like 2009 um costa rica did theirs in like 2010 um uh, new zealand brought theirs up and it came before the parliament, before a vote in 2012. It was headed up by, actually, uh, Phil Twyford and Gareth Hughes. Uh, And they, uh, in particular, Phil Twyford, had a huge stake in this issue and tried really, really hard to accomplish a Belgian-type band. Uh, Because although, obviously, New Zealand is an anti-nuclear country, a nuclear-free zone, they found that Australia was shipping depleted uranium through New Zealand ports. And so they said, okay, we've got to put a stop to this. And then they also, again, went that step further and wanted to have New Zealand banks make it uh, illegal for New Zealand banks to invest in companies that make depleted uranium. So they astonishingly uh, got, uh, at that time, the Maori Party was, of course, um, coalitioning with the National Party. And they got the Maori Party to break off. And actually joined their coalition, which included, you know, um, Labor, the Greens, uh, New Zealand First, and then um, the Mallory Party as well. And they thought they had the votes for it. And on the day of the vote, um, one of the people that they'd been relying on to make the vote wasn't there. He just had to attend a funeral. It was a very uh, sad situation, obviously. Uh, But as a result, they came one vote short of passing that same uh, similar legal structure in New Zealand. So the ban failed by one vote in 2012, and it's never been brought up again, which I also think is very interesting because it seems like, especially with a Labour and Green coalition now in charge of the government, and Phil Twyford being in charge of the disarmament uh, branch of the government being the disarmament minister... He, uh, he could really have this for the price of a cup of coffee. He could just go down and say, like, hey, remember that thing we did nine years ago and it didn't work? Well, why don't we take care of that this afternoon? I don't know, though. Obviously, it's a much more complicated political story than that, um, and I really want to find out the ins and outs and how they got so far in 2012, especially getting the Maori Party to break their coalition with National – and uh and and why they haven't tried it since because i think that's a fascinating story and i just don't know the answer to that but yeah that was sort of the the crest of the wave and since then there have been other attempts uh and they haven't gotten quite as far i will say there's been a lot of pressure inside of the united kingdom and that as recently as about 2017 uh, the United Kingdom has taken the depleted uranium penetrator shells out of their tanks. So they still have it in the armor of the tanks, but they no longer have it in the offensive weaponry of the tanks. But that's only four years old. And that's also uh, one of my case studies, so I want to know why they made that decision uh, and and why the campaign. Because obviously Kenny Duncan's case was you know, over a decade uh, ago, and, and yet they, they only moved on it rather recently. How about Germany? Do they? You know, Germany doesn't use it. um, And Germany is a particularly interesting country in this regard because they have sort of become the poster child for if you don't want to use depleted uranium, what do you use instead? And the Germans use a tungsten steel alloy, which doesn't burn and isn't self-sharpening, but is about as hard and heavy as depleted uranium. Uh, and so it's 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 just as effective and indeed the british military when they got rid of depleted uranium just went over and got the same kind of penetrator rounds that the germans were using uh and so germany is is thought of i think at least technologically speaking as as the model for an alternative if you wanted to stop using depleted uranium that said and again one of the interesting things about this is that the U.S. has bases inside of Germany, as does the UK, and they have artillery and they have firing ranges. So you have an issue where the German military doesn't use it, but if you have, let's say, a windy day and it picks up some of the smoke from the depleted uranium, maybe it's blowing it into German towns and Germans don't even know they're being exposed to it. So that's a big issue as well. And if Germany were to pass a ban similar to what Belgium did, that would actually be a huge step forward. Now, The, um,
2: why hasn't it worked out as it has with landmines? Of course, it took a while to ban landmines, didn't it?
1: Yeah, by international standards, the ban on landmines is lightning fast, though. I mean, it starts in the early 90s and it ends in the late 90s, right? So that's what's so incredible about landmines. The other interesting thing about the landmine ban is that it came from the bottom up. It's, it's I mean, it started with the Vietnam Veterans of America. Um, and I, I think that, that's, that the work they did in the, in the early 90s to make this um, issue a big deal was really extraordinary. And the fact that they were able to get so many cooperating partners uh, on their side so quickly. It was also rather extraordinary. You know, Human Rights Watch and um, the Red Cross. uh, They were really quite effective. And then the formation of the International Coalition to Ban Landmines outside of any particular uh, organization, but instead a coalition of all of the organizations was a very smart and effective strategy. And then in particular, they were able to find some really sympathetic ears. So you had people, uh, politicians and lawmakers in countries across the world that were willing to listen to them. Uh, So in the US, you had, you know, Senator Patrick Leahy. And even though the US never signed the Ottawa Treaty, you know, you had lots of U.S. laws that prohibited the use of landmines, you know, uh, moratoriums on exports, you know, limiting use in the military, on and on and on, and uh, and they were rather successful in the early days in the U.S. and then it, and then sort of. The rest of the world leapfrogged the US and signed the treaty that the US didn't. And then obviously they found a very sympathetic ear in Canada. And Canada was able to, you know, pick up the banner and run with it. And they were able to use a lot of uh, their political savvy to get other countries on board, including countries that weren't particularly interested in it at first. You know, Sweden and Finland had no interest in the. Uh, ICBL's mission in the early days because they were scared of invasion by Russia, and so they thought landmines were a great use, a great tool. But they ultimately wound up signing the Ottawa Treaty because it was shown to be a better argument. I mean, the Canadians were just able to win them over. And so um, I, I think that the goal of a lot of campaigns since the international coalition to ban landmines has been to try to do that, and it's just really hard to replicate that success um, because it was a rather unique moment. They were able to get a big push on one issue very quickly. And I think especially in a social media world, people's attention just gets divided a lot more quickly. Um, and so uh, that's at least an early theory. That's just based on my early preliminary research. I obviously have a lot more research to do in that regard. But I think that one of the big issues, of course, one of the big ways in which um Landmines could be discussed, and that depleted uranium has a harder time with, is that with landmines there's a real obvious correlation does equal causation. You know, if you step on a landmine, your leg gets blown off. That's what happens. Whereas the depleted uranium, uh, you know, even with the preponderance of evidence that I was talking about earlier, there's still a question in it's people's mind. Like
2: cigarette smoking and cancer, or yeah. Or climate change.
1: Yeah, I mean, those are both really great examples. You know, what I often think of when talking about depleted uranium, because especially it was all about the form of ingestion, is I imagine somebody going back in time and uh, talking about, you know, uh, hey, we have these studies that show tobacco usage causes increased rates of lung cancer. We should do something about this. And then somebody going off and doing a bunch of... Uh, research projects or sample sizes with uh, people who were, quote, tobacco users and finding no, you know, increased lung cancer. Then you come to find out all of the tobacco users that they were looking at were people who chewed tobacco instead of smoking. And so then you have, you know, years of studies saying, no, smoking is what causes lung cancer, but... Uh, people don't read those studies because you have this huge body of evidence that says tobacco usage doesn't cause lung cancer, Because, but they only looked at tobacco chewers. Now, obviously, that's not what happened. We looked at smokers first. Um, but I do think that that is essentially what's happened to depleted uranium. We only looked at one form of ingestion, but because it was a more uranium in the body, we just assumed that that had to be the worst possible version of it. So um, by not looking at people who were breathing or drinking depleted uranium, it, we were able to sort of passed off a lot of the concerns that people had in those okay. early days.
2: Uranium, uh you uranium is essentially connected with nuclear weapons. Should nuclear weapons also be banned and why is it There's so little progress toward nuclear disarmament.
1: Well, first off, I I would disagree and say that there's been a lot of progress towards nuclear disarmament in recent years. I think that the guys campaigning to, you know, get nuclear weapons banned now, I mean, even as recently as January 2021, they've had huge success. Um, And so I would say that that's actually a very successful movement thus far. Um, You know, uh, in terms of why should nuclear weapons be banned, well, that could take all day. (laughs) We've only got about five minutes left. Uh, But I mean, obviously, two minutes left. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, maybe I'll just uh, wrap it up by saying, you know, I, I think that weapons that kill indiscriminately, anybody that cares about peace or, or veterans health or even just health in general it should be worried about weapons that kill indiscriminately um, and, and obviously you know as, as we talked about earlier there's lots of soldiers now that were exposed to atomic bomb testing that are you know suing their own governments for remunerations because of obvious health problems I think about um zone rouge in france so for people who might not be familiar with this the big battles of world war one were all sort of fought in the same area the somme the marne verdun those are all like right next to each other in northern france Uh, and they put down lots of landmines shot lots of artillery rounds there's lots of unexploded ordnance in that region of france so it's called zone rouge the red zone because essentially no one can live there and they now believe that at current pace It'll take approximately 700 years to clean up Zone Rouge uh, in order for this us to This is from be, World War I. This is from World War I. So this is a war that happened over 100 years ago. In fact, the dark joke amongst people uh, that live in that area, is uh, they ask who was the last person to be killed by a landmine put down in World War I, and the response is, the last person to be killed by a landmine put down in World War I hasn't been born yet.
2: Okay. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, Matt. And uh, – it's something we need to talk about.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad to have an audience. I'm glad that people are listening, and I hope they uh, take this to heart, look up the issue themselves, and, uh, and I hope that uh, my research is able to make a splash. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. This podcast was produced
2: by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.